This evening I want to talk about and explore with you the theme of uh, metta or loving-kindness, compassion and forgiveness. And it's helpful to begin by reflecting on the most general uh, sense of our practice. And this is our practice, uh, whether it's metta or mindfulness or developing wisdom in daily life. Um, I, I've grown to appreciate a way of talking about this practice, which I think covers mindfulness as well as metta, in a, in a very simple way. And perhaps some of you use this language. And, and that is that we, we are cultivating the capacity we're training to be able increasingly each moment to be responsive rather than reactive. And it sounds simple, doesn't it? And there's a lot packed into those terms. You know, by reactive we're meaning really taken over by our habits or our patterns or our, or our tendencies and often uh, thinking and acting uh, compulsively, not really, um, not really free, in a way. And to be responsive means that we have, to significant extent, um, looked at our conditioning. We sometimes say our conditioning is not our fault, but it's our responsibility. <laughs> and so we've worked with our conditioning, with our habits, and we've seen through them enough so we start to have some degree of, of freedom. So we can actually be fresh with the moment and respond rather than react, rather than be uh, carried by the momentum of habit. And that permits us to not only have our mind be relatively free and not bound so much by habit and pattern, uh, but also we can learn better to act skillfully. So there are different aspects of this. We could point to the way we learn to be responsive uh, at the level of the heart, at the level of um, responding with kindness, at the level of wisdom, at the level of action. And this capacity for responsiveness uh, really, uh, in a sense, is our birthright, our basic nature. Um, as we practice more, we come more and more in contact with this quality of love and wisdom and really the radiance of our being that is identical with that freedom. So a story. There are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, what the hell is water? <laughs> So this is an analogy for our practice. <laughs> that there's a way that we are swimming, in a sense, in love and wisdom. And we have to come to places like Spirit Rock to learn about water. That there is this uh, deep quality which we access at times uh, of this warmth and kindness and the Metta Sutta, as we know from the readings, it talks about how it's possible to have a sense of radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. You know, it's not a metaphor. It can be an experience. And really the, uh, that message is really conveyed uh, continually in the text. It's another 
place in the text it says, our minds and hearts are luminous, but they are covered over by what are called the defilements, which means greed, hatred, and delusion. Our nature is luminous. And in the text, it's all that luminosity is often connected with metta. And it said that the liberation of the heart by metta glows like the moon. And so uh, the sequence of our practice, really in any of the forms of practice that we do, is, you know, one sequence at least, is that we, as we are here, we find a protected place for training. And we train in this relatively protected place to develop better the qualities of calm and concentration and insight and metta. And we learn to develop those qualities more. Not a linear process, we know that. But we develop them more. We can access, we can have moments where they seem to shine for us. Even if they're sometimes brief moments. And they shine and they're there for us. We also, of course, um, don't simply develop these beautiful qualities in a linear way. If that were occurring, we wouldn't have to have one-on-one meetings. That, of course, part of the training is to see what, as it were, stands in the way of that uh, quality of heart coming forth. And so we see what's there, the you know, whether it's distraction or the so-called hindrances or self-judgment or whatever, we notice those qualities. And in that process, we keep learning. And we could say all of that is in a training context, the training context here, maybe in our formal sittings at home. And then we gradually bring out this training into everyday life as we add complexity, speed, and increase the level of difficulty and the lack of support. (laughs) (laughs) This is an overview of our practice. (laughs) So uh, I hope that's helpful because it can maybe give a sense of what we're doing. And you you can see that it's it's also, um, um, this is long-term work, right? That's why we have a number of people here for whom this is not their first meta retreat. <laughs> you know, it's long term, and um, it's good that it's long term. Gives us a job. <laughs> I think there are other reasons it's good. <laughs> So what I want to do in the talk is to actually extend the map somewhat and start going beyond the way that we've been developing metta and the the kindness of heart where it's easiest and most accessible. And I want to start to, uh, as it were, uh, bring in um, and widen the map. Or let's see, bring in a wider map, I should say, uh, in which uh, I'll start to talk about how do we work to bring that kind heart into moments when there's difficulty or pain or distress. Because ultimately our intention, and again, I, I said, uh, I think I said in one of the meetings, maybe yesterday in the, in the talk on compassion, that the intention, the core intention here that we're supporting is very audacious. It's really saying that we want to have the intention to have the kind heart in every circumstance, even when there's difficulty. And just to clarify right ahead of time, having the kind heart in difficulties doesn't mean being overly nice. There's developing in the West a whole body of understanding about what we could call tough metta, like tough love, (laughs) you know, meaning How do you have kindness and act firmly, set boundaries, say no, etc. And do what needs to be done in a difficult situation. So 
that, just to clarify, that, that when we talk about bringing the spirit of metta and the kind heart in, we're not talking about simply being nice, being a pushover here. I'm a nice person. Act in a distressing way to me. And I will just smile. It's not really that. That would be uh, more than a near miss <laughs> or a near opposite. So I want to uh, talk a little bit more generally about metta and how, some, how it works, and then talk about how we start to bring the quality of metta into uh, difficult circumstances, and then specifically talk about compassion and then forgiveness. And tomorrow morning, we'll uh, practice uh, forgiveness together. So a few more words about metta, just to uh, give some other perspectives on what this practice is about. Uh, and I'll talk about it very simply in just a few ways. And one way of understanding metta is that we're in a training where we continually learn to lead with our hearts. We continually learn and ask, where is my kind heart right now? Is it there? And of course we can then bring that out into daily life. And we can do that even if we've been uh, conditioned in our past uh, not to lead with our hearts. You know, For example, I think I was uh, trained and to some extent conditioned to lead with my problem-solving analytical mind that could speak quickly you know, and so forth. And, and so, and I, I always knew I had a good heart because I would cry at driver ed movies in high school. <laughs> so I knew something was there. <laughs> but but the, the metta has been a wonderful training to actually, you know, complement other things, of course, but to have a way to uh, train, to say, let me bring that kind heart in more and more moment to moment. So we have this intention to continually bring in the heart. And I want to bring in uh, the words of Dr. King. I think, as Heather said this morning, today is Dr. King's actual birthday. And... You know, we have the national celebration on Monday, so we can think of this whole period from today through Monday as a time for Dr. King. So I will bring in his words quite a lot this evening in honor of him. And he's been a very important figure in my own understanding uh, on all sorts of issues, you know, and probably most deeply on the way that spiritual practice manifests in the world, and particularly with, with injustice. This is what he said. I say to you, this is really about the intention to bring love and kindness to each moment. I say to you, I have decided to stick to love for I know that love is ultimately the only answer to human problems. I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I am not speaking of that force which is just emotional bosh. I am speaking of that force which all the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality, he says. And so we have that intention moment by moment in our meta practice. And the practice is simply coming back moment to moment to that intention, you know, and it manifests through coming with the phrases, but what we're doing is actually strengthening that capacity to keep returning, keep returning, keep returning, you know, and it doesn't always feel like juicy metta, but we're training ourselves to come back and it has a lot of different levels. You know, um, one level is is that we're actually developing more concentration in the mind. Classically, metta is a concentration practice. And one can actually uh, use metta practice and go into very deep meditative states. 
And that's uh, sometimes done in practice, you know, where the words fall away and there can be a deep absorption in these very um, amazing um, qualities of mind that open up. And so we develop that concentration. We work with uh, distraction. You know, we do one thing which can be both wonderful and maddening. Have you noticed? You know, we just do one. Th- it can be tremendous. I find it often a tremendous relief. Just, okay, I'm just doing one thing. Don't have to figure anything out. I'm just doing my phrases, right? I'm just, uh, that's my activity. And it can, be, it can be a relief and it can be uh, simplifying. And of course, it can be hard and it can feel dry sometimes. That's the way it is. Uh, from the philosopher Kierkegaard, purity of heart is to will one thing, which is more about sort of the, the joy and the beauty of that concentrated uh, intention. And the concentration can also lead to qualities of steadiness, of ease, of calm, of relaxation, which are quite wonderful qualities, you know, as, as the concentration develops. There's also an aspect which we've uh, suggested already at times that happens in, in metta, which is that there's a process of purification that occurs. You know, and we use that word sometimes, and I, I recognize it as a, a word that might not resonate with everyone, because it sometimes, some, can sometimes imply that there's a pure and an impure. And, and so you may want to use another metaphor but, but I think of it that the, the process of purification really has two aspects. One of them, we see what stands in the way of metta, you know, and we open up to that. And that's a, a key part of the practice. You know, we find that metta retreats often are emotionally more volatile. People have more intense dreams with metta retreats at times. You know, people come in the morning and say, Last night I was a hatchet murderer. Is this my true nature? <laughs> and we say, normal, don't worry. <laughs> you know, and, and that could be called part of the purification process. You know, it, it occurs like that. Or we can really start to see sometimes our self-judgment. You know, as, we, as we've seen from some of the questions and as we know from talking with you, that it's a very challenging energy in this culture. You know, it comes up and is very, very strong. And metta is a powerful practice. When, when, um, when we teach on transforming the judgmental mind, the two initial foundational practices are metta, to hold the process with kindness, and mindfulness to keep tracking the judgmental mind. Those are the two, that's where you start. So if you're working with that, you're already doing the metta. And if it's happening a lot, you can track it. Just name it. Okay, there it is, without, without going further. And the other aspect of purification is that we start to open to the metta, to the qualities of kindness, to the simple, to the simple qualities, to the simple quality of kindness, of warmth. And that starts to shine forth at times, where it shines forth with our most accessible uh, metta categories or metta muses. One of the aspects of, uh, of how that purification process works that is uh, connected with compassion and, and forgiveness is, is related to the way that metta is in a family of heart practices that Larry mentioned last night. The main family is that called the divine abodes or Brahma Vihara. And that, that family is that of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And um, there have been um, other newly admitted family members in the West. <laughs> and Larry talked about gratitude. Uh, earlier today. And gratitude is uh, close to joy in many ways. And it really, it really is also a very important heart practice. And 
uh, forgiveness is as well. And there are two aspects of this teaching of the four abodes um, that are quite wonderful. And um, maybe, maybe before I do that, let me read you two very nice uh, ways of describing these four abodes. The first one is, in, is from one of my uh, students named Chuck Squire. This is uh, a, a short poem on the Brahma Vihara. When the mind is filled with thoughts that really aren't so useful, metta is betta. <laughs> when you open up your heart to the sorrows of the world, you'll find karuna suna. <laughs> when you feel you can't share the joy of others' good fortune, remember mudita isvita. When the winds of the world can't blow you astray, you've got a heka upeka. And a similar note from the 14th century (laughs) from the great Tibetan teacher Longchenpa. Out of the soul of metta grows the beautiful bloom of compassion to be watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. From the great, uh, great Tibetan teacher Longchenpa. And there are the, the, the um, teachings of these four abodes, and we could really add gratitude and forgiveness, um, I think have two very beautiful, subtle um, aspects to the teaching, which we've uh, started to mention. And they're very important. One of them is this, I find, very important and subtle teaching of the um, near opposites, or sometimes called the near enemies, or Heather, I think it's Heather's term, the near misses. These are distorted versions of the authentic quality. So we say that the near opposite of metta is, is uh, attached care, right? where there's attachment, or we could say codependence, or, um, and so forth, where it's, not, where it's there some, it's not absent, but there's a distortion there. And similarly, when we looked at compassion, we saw that the near opposite of compassion is traditionally pity. The near opposite uh, of joy is, a kind, is also a kind of attached joy where we're really kind of inflated about the joy. And the near opposite of equanimity is indifference. It doesn't have the care. Now, what that points to is, is an interesting aspect is that um, actually each of the four, if we just limit ourselves to the four, need each other. That to be fully mature, loving kindness needs compassion, joy, and equanimity. It's another very subtle teaching that loving kindness, for example, just to have warmth and kindness, but if we're uh, not guided by the wisdom of equanimity, it will tend to go astray. Or we can think of compassion without uh, joy can lead to uh, burnout, right? If we're helping others and there's a lot of compassion, but we, we don't have enough of the joy and maybe not enough of the wisdom of equanimity, it can be distorted. And similarly, equanimity can be distorted if it doesn't have the care. It doesn't have the care of especially metta and compassion. And so there's this beautiful teaching where they all require each other to be fully mature. And so mature metta includes mindfulness and wisdom and also compassion, joy, and equanimity. So it's way more than a twofer that you're getting here. <laughs> Practice metta. And as you develop, you get all these other qualities to be fully mature in your metta. We don't put that in the advertisements, but maybe we should. <laughs> With compassion and forgiveness, we start to bring the heart practices into places where there may be difficulty or distress. And we'll be bringing in metta for the difficult person uh, I think on Saturday morning, if I'm, if I'm right, is that right? Yeah. Today is Thursday. <laughs> and there are, also, there are also other ways 
that metta can be brought into difficulties. Um, one of the ways is that because of the concentrative aspect, metta can be an antidote, what we call an antidote. In other words, it can be uh, much like the story that Heather gave last night. Uh, metta was understood classically as an antidote to fear. And so it can be used very concretely. And maybe you've seen that when we're caught in something. Let's say here, I'm caught in self-judgment. And I can actually, sometimes if the concentration is strong, I can say, let's move out of that. And that's actually wise. And so it's quite important to have the mindfulness to know when I'm stuck and when I'm not stuck. And if I'm really stuck, it's actually good to get out of that lost state. And metta can serve as an antidote when when I'm really caught in something, in anxiety or self-judgment. It's also very useful at home. Let's suppose something difficult happened and I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm really just caught in whatever, regret or judgment or anger, and I'm lost in it. And we can use metta in that capacity as an antidote. It's very, we have to have the practice at the level where it has enough concentration where we can just call upon it and shift the energy. And I I think that level can be attained by doing it 10 or 15 minutes a day. So we're not, you know, we're not, we're not, I think it's, it's very practical for all of us. One experience that I had with metta as an antidote happened a few years ago. I was on retreat. Uh, I, was go- I was on retreat at Taramandala, which is a center in southwest uh, Colorado, in the mountains. And I was camping. And I asked for a camping place, and they showed me to a camping place. And I wanted one that was kind of somewhat away from everything. And they showed me one, and it looked like a very nice place. And they said, oh yes, um, a bear did come through here a week ago. But we caught it. (laughs) And we took it away. (laughs) I think they said 50 miles away. And I said, okay, I'll take the spot. And it was like in the afternoon, and then the end of the day, it was like 9.30 or 10, I went back to my spot. It was like a few hundred yards from anyone else. I started to go to sleep. You know the rest of the story, right? Um, the bear came to mind. (laughs) And I started to think about the bear, and I said, of course, rationally, I I know the bear is 50 miles away. Uh, And that didn't help. (laughs) You know how that is, and then, of course, you know, probably most of us have done camping where we (laughs) overinterpret sounds in the night, right? (laughs) And so I was overinterpreting for quite some time. (laughs) And... Um, at a certain point, I realized what was happening, right? This is like the brilliance of years and years of meditation. It takes still, <laughs> still takes a little while to say, I am a little bit stuck, right? And at a certain point, I realized that, and I said, it's time for metta. And I'm kind of getting anxious about the bear. And, and so I started doing metta. And um, usually antidotes, like in the middle of the night, something happened yesterday. For me, they happen relatively quickly. I can shift and the thoughts can subside you know, in whatever, five minutes, ten minutes, something like that. Well, uh, with the bear, I did metta for three hours. <laughs> At the end of three hours, this is a true story, of course. At the end of, end of three hours of metta, Something settled, I relaxed, I slept soundly, I didn't think about the bear the rest of the retreat, and the bear didn't come. Interesting. So, metta is an antidote. Um, It's useful. (laughs) Whether it's big bears or small bears that come in the form of, you know, Uh, worrying about something. 
So there's, there's a way that we want to bring our meta practice to difficult situations. We want to bring the heart to difficult situations. I like very much a Tibetan saying which goes like this. When the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. <laughs> However, it is when troubles arise that my faults are exposed. And so it's really pointing to the fact that um, it's actually helpful at times to take challenges, to have challenges, to have, have difficulties, to be tested. And of course, here in a training capacity, we sort of start with the easiest and then we bring in a little more challenge, a little more challenge. We have it in a fairly ordered way, but it's helpful to have, you know, the whole approach here is to have that idea that I will really work with the every situation as best I can, bringing in the kind heart, the awakened heart. That's, uh, that's what we want to do. And so when we look to um, practices which are particularly useful, we can look to compassion and forgiveness. Very powerful practices. And in fact, I find myself that in situations where there might be um, interpersonal difficulty or um, sometimes even self-judgment, compassion and forgiveness can sometimes be more effective than metta. Primarily because they tend to tune us into the pain with the heart holding the pain and there can be some softening towards ourselves or towards others. And so we're not so much trying to wish metta for a person with whom we have a conflict but we're actually tuning into the pain of the situation. And we know that compassion is the kind heart in the presence of pain or difficulty or suffering. And something can soften. So that's, I just report my own experience, but a lot of people have that, that these can be very effective with difficulties. And of course, complementary to metta with a difficult person. Sometimes we say that the essence of the teachings is to connect wisdom and compassion. We say that the Dharma is like a bird that flies with the wings of wisdom and compassion. And very central quality. And, and we were also talking, I think, I, um, earlier about how does the uh, kind heart connect with the wisdom aspect, for example, of impermanence. We were looking at that this morning. And so I found um, a short answer to that question from the writings of Robert Aitken Roshi, uh, who, who I knew and worked with quite a bit. Um, he wrote a book uh, called Zen Master Raven, which was um, um, full of animals expressing Dharma. Here's, here's one passage, it's short. In the, in the text, one character, Al says, to brown bear. What are right views? It's really asking about wisdom. What are right views? Brown bear responds, we're all in it together and we don't have much time. We're all in it together and we don't have much time. That has that aspect of compassion as having a sense that uh, increasingly that our hearts are the same and increasingly that we can tune into others' difficulties and our own difficulties. And as we saw yesterday, there, there are these two main forms of compassion in our practice. One of them is being with difficulty or distress and just the awareness can open us up can have the heart open up. And then the other aspect is the specific compassion practice where we use phrases like in metta practice, one of the Brahmavihara practices. And we, we worked with uh, both of those yesterday. To be able to open and develop compassion requires that we reverse very, a very typical conditioning which is to move away from what's difficult or painful. 
a cartoon, a young meditator saying, today I will live in the moment, unless the moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. (laughs) Does that resonate? (laughs) Did everyone come to the retreat for the bliss part of it, the opening of the heart, the wonderful qualities, and then, hey, they don't put in the description that there's a purification process going on, and oh, you can write to Spirit Rock after the retreat and ask for truth and advertising. Um, but it's, it's, uh, we have that conditioning. We uh, are conditioned generally not to open up to what's difficult, whether it's in our life or in our society. You know? And we want the, the pleasant. There's a teaching which is probably my most beloved teachings from the teaching of the Buddha which expresses this really uh, well, and, and it follows from some w- of what I was saying yesterday in the talk of compassion, which is the essence of this way of being willing to open to what's difficult. And it's the teaching of the two arrows. And the Buddha asked his practitioners, everyone experiences the unpleasant. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? And he, he answered his own question, and he said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. And we could say that that means that sometimes we have physical difficulties or emotional difficulties or we're treated unfairly and so forth. And everyone has that, some people more than others, of course. And we um, can distinguish a non-practitioner from a practitioner in this way. The non-practitioner because of the presence of the unpleasant or what we could call pain, tends to react as if that would help. And so if we're having physical pain, we may tense around the pain. Or we may, we may tense physically, we may judge ourselves. If we have a difficult emotional experience, we may blame ourselves, judge ourselves, blame another. In some ways react as if that would help. You know, when we're treated unfairly, we may lash out at the other person. Or on the level of social groups or societies, there may be violence. The Buddha called the initial pain, the initial quality of the unpleasant, he called that the first arrow. And he called the reaction the second arrow. That when we're not conscious, we will tend because of the presence of the first arrow, will tend to shoot a second arrow. The practitioner learns not to shoot the second arrow, which means in part that we have to learn to be okay with the unpleasant. That we can, of course, we want to be wise with the unpleasant. Sometimes it's wise not to stay with physical discomfort, but we learn how to be with physical discomfort. It's a big part of my training. We learn, this is maybe more obvious, we learn how to be with difficult thoughts and difficult emotions without them taking us over. We can open to them. We can open to sadness. We can open to grief. We can open to anger. We can open to fear, even to anxiety, when we can be mindful of it and open to it. We can open to unfairness, you know, and we learn not to shoot the second arrow. I, I interpret Dr. King's work and the work of Gandhi and traditions of nonviolence as saying we have received pain, we will not pass on the pain, and yet we will respond very firmly and actively. Do you see how nonviolence is very much consonant with this message of not shooting the second arrow? So that is part of our training here. We have to develop in that. And then we learn how to be with what's difficult. The poet Naomi Sheheb Nye says that we have to learn how to be with pain before we can really open to kindness. She says this, some of you know this poem, she's a Palestinian American poet. The poem called Kindness, before you really know what kindness is, you must lose things feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must 
go so you can know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you rode and rode thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the windows forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak till it, till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows. And then you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to read letters, mail them, purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So we practice that compassion with ourselves in difficult moments, much like in the self-compassion form of metta that we did yesterday. And we can do the dedicated compassion practice as well. We can develop compassion receptively, just feeling it, being present with it. And then as we explored yesterday, we also as an expression of compassion, we act in the world. We act in our lives. Again, from Dr. King, this is from the letter from a Birmingham jail from 1963. I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so the compassion practice can be wonderful practice when there's some difficulty or distress. It complements the metta practice beautifully and can be very helpful when, the, when, the, when there are difficulties, you know, here in our lives. And forgiveness practice does something very, very similar. It's also a way that we respond to difficulty or distress, whether in relation to ourselves or another, with the intention to have a kind heart. And we'll practice tomorrow morning working with with forgiveness practice with phrases. Much like in metta and compassion practice, it's the phrases that carry the intention. And we'll work with ways of bringing forgiveness to another, asking for forgiveness from another, offering forgiveness to ourselves, and then in a fourth type of forgiveness that that I learned from Larry, actually offering forgiveness to the very nature of things for the level of uh, difficulty that there may be in our lives or in the world. And I'll say more about that tomorrow morning. So it's a very powerful heart practice. The psychologist Roberto Asagioli says, without forgiveness, Life is governed by an endless cycle of resentment and retaliation, whether towards ourselves or towards others. From the Buddha, he abused me, he struck me, he overcame me, he robbed me. In those who harbor such thoughts, hatred will never cease. He abused me, he struck me, he overcame me, he robbed me. In those who do not harbor such thoughts, hatred will cease. So we could say that forgiveness is one way of staying connected to one's awakened hearts, particularly when there are difficulties. So a a few quotes um, uh, about forgiveness. Um, Oscar Wilde, and you know you're going to get something that's um, um, tangentially related to the Buddha. (laughs) Always forgive your enemies, nothing annoys them so much. from uh, President John Kennedy. Forgive your enemies, but never forget their names. (laughs) (laughs) And so 
It's, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating quality, forgiveness. It, it can be uh, really an attitude that we bring to everything. This is, this is from Dr. King. Forgiveness is not an occasional act, but a constant attitude. Again, it's a way, one way, particularly when there's difficulties of bringing the heart into the situation. There are two main modes of forgiveness practice, and we'll do one of them. The first mode is more interpersonal and social. And that's where we might actually speak with someone, offer forgiveness in person, engage in a social act, even engage in large-scale processes like Heather was referring to in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So there can be these large-scale processes. Uh, I was, uh, I learned about one of these um, several years ago when I was invited up to uh, an island uh, 14 hours north of Vancouver to attend uh, a potlatch ceremony. I have uh, what they call in Canada, First Nations peoples invited me, a friends. They invited me to their family potlatch, which is a gift giving ceremony that was uh, outlawed by the Christian missionaries because they were suspicious of people giving gifts. (laughs) Believe it or not. And it was only brought back in 1951. Anyway, I won't won't get going on that. But um, um, I met someone named Frank Brown, who, as a young man, I met him, he was in his probably um, 30s, I think. And he had, as a 17-year-old, he was part of a group of kids who committed some burglaries. And they were about to turn him over to the Canadian criminal justice system, and his aunt remembered that there was an old traditional practice whereby someone who um, in some way mm, violated a norm of the community might undergo a a different kind of uh, practice, which is really more about forgiveness. In that practice, they would be asked to live apart from the community for a year and then come back in a ceremony to the community. And Frank was willing to do this. And so instead of going to prison, presumably, or some youth detention place, he went and lived on an island, right, you know, about a mile from the town across a body of water for a year. He was visited by the elders. Apparently, he went through quite a profound transformation. And he came back to the community, and there was what they call a washing ceremony. kind of a forgiveness ceremony. He was welcomed back into the community just a year later. The time there turned his life around and he um, became a leader in the indigenous arts of the uh, ocean-going canoe. And he started working with that, particularly uh, with um, youth in trouble which he's been doing ever since. Quite a, um, quite a different model, isn't it? Right? Bringing forgiveness into that level. So sometimes forgiveness is at the level of the community, interpersonally, socially. There's also um, forgiveness as an inner practice. And this is the form that we'll do tomorrow morning. And this is where we look at Uh, what's there. Forgiveness as an inner practice is really saying, I have reactivity still in relation to what happened, either in terms of another person or myself. I have reactivity. My heart is not at peace. And I commit to work with it. That's what forgiveness practice is. And so even if something happened that was clearly wrong and so forth, I may still be reactive. Jack Kornfield says, forgiveness is giving up hope of a better past. Now, having said that, very crucial to say what forgiveness isn't. 
Forgiveness is not uh, condoning what happened. Forgiveness can go hand in hand with saying, no, that was wrong, that was not acceptable, I will not allow that again, setting boundaries, etc. So forgiveness is not about condoning. As an inner practice, it's really about, is there reactivity still in my heart in relation to something from the past, either relation to myself or relation to another? So it's also not about forgetting. From Dr. King, Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. It is the lifting of the burden or the canceling of a debt. The words, I will forgive you, but I'll never forget what you've done, never explain the real nature of forgiveness. Certainly one can never forget if that means erasing it totally from his mind. But when we forgive, we forget in the sense that the evil deed is no longer a mental block impeding a new relationship. Likewise, we can never say, I will forgive you, but I won't have anything further to do with you. Forgiveness means reconciliation, a coming together again. And actually, I think there are times when we can say, I forgive you and I don't want to have anything to do with you. So I would humbly differ with Dr. King, which I hope that's acceptable on his birthday. <laughs> but we, I think we can have a, maybe we'll have a friendly discussion in my dreams tonight about that point, so we'll see. Um, so it's a practice that we do much like metta practice. We will work with phrases tomorrow morning. We, we incline ourselves towards forgiveness and then we really just see what happens, much like metta. We say a phrase, we incline towards forgiveness, and we see what happens. And sometimes if I have an interpersonal difficulty, for example, I'll incline towards, I'll say the phrase, and I might feel, oh, someone I care for, we, had a, we have a, a nod or something, and I can feel sadness. And that softens the heart, that's what I was talking about. That's why it sometimes can be more powerful or direct than metta, because it goes right into the possibility of softening the heart, which is so important, right? So important here. So compassion and forgiveness can do that. And so we can work with that forgiveness here at the retreat. You know, as I teach it tomorrow, we can bring forgiveness to the retreat. You know, we're not speaking to each other, but sometimes we are slightly irritated by what a fellow retreatant might do. I won't ask for hands for whom that's true. <laughs> but it sometimes occurs and we can, we can forgive other people in the retreat. We can forgive ourselves for the sleepy meditation if we're getting hard on ourselves and so forth. At home, I use forgiveness practice. Um, very good when one's driving. <laughs> Someone cut me off. Okay. If you have hurt me in word, thought, or deed, I freely forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or we can, I, I like to do metta on the spot for small stuff. And much like in, uh, with the metta practice, we work up to the hard stuff. We start with the smaller stuff and we work up. That's actually a principle for all of the heart training here. We don't jump in where it's too hard. We start where it's workable and we, and we move towards the more difficult. I like to use the metaphor of the degree of difficulty of the Olympic diver, zero to 10, you know? And we start towards the bottom range. And we may only get to the nines or tens later at certain times. Very, very important principle. Maybe one more point and then I'll move towards closing. One of the assumptions of forgiveness practice is that we make a distinction between the person and the act. And in a sense, we hold the sacredness of the person, even as we are um, questioning and in many ways uh, not accepting, or how should I say, uh, not approving of the act. That distinction, really, really crucial. Really, really crucial. a story, and this is a story I heard from my mom, who, this is my mom here, she was visiting. 
And this is a, this is the true story. And this was she uh, educated the children about this distinction between the person and the act. Right? Very very good for parenting. Thank you. <laughs> and um, she tells a story of when she was with my brother, who's two years younger, named named Frederick, and he had done something. This was he was age five, and he had done something where he was uh, teasing another boy. And she said to him, I love you very much, but I don't like what you just did. And his response was, at age five, don't talk to me like a psychologist, just spank me like the other parents do. And maybe that was at the end of the discussion. <laughs> so. So. <laughs> okay, so maybe just a few things to close. Um, and we'll, we'll, come, we'll come back to forgiveness uh, tomorrow morning as a practice at, at nine o'clock actually. And I'll, I'll say more about the formal practice then. So just a few things to close. One of them is that you can see that forgiveness can be this powerful social force. This, this, is, uh, this is Nelson Mandela. And I've been very influenced by the uh, learning about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And in fact, I, um, about 15 years ago, I was on this, uh, I was at this gathering that took place at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky where Thomas Merton was a monk, and there was a meeting of people who were interested in the combination of spirituality and social action. And it was a, it was a privilege to be there, and there were wonderful people. There was a Nobel Prize winner from Argentina named, uh, I think was it, uh, um, I don't know if it was Alberto, but it was, his last name was Perez Esquivel, some of you may know. He won the Nobel Prize in 19... 19- 78, and Helen Prejean was there, you know, the dead man walking. And I hung out a lot with um, three people from South Africa. And one of them was a man named Bongani Blessing Finca, who was one of the commissioners along with Desmond Tutu on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I eventually did an interview with him and learned a lot about it. And I think I'm, I may read something tomorrow morning because, I want, because we're coming to the end of our time. Um, but it's a very, very powerful, intense uh, uh, messages of forgiveness there. This is Nelson Mandela. If there are dreams about a beautiful South Africa, there are also roads that lead to their goal. Two of these roads could be named goodness and forgiveness. And there's a sense in which ultimately this is mysterious. You know, how does the heart open when there's difficulty? How do we open when there's distress? How do we open when there's been something really difficult in the past? It seems to be able to happen. It's mysterious and sometimes miraculous. Um, Let's see, a few stories. Um, And I'll, I'll end with this. This is Desmond Tutu about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think back to my time as chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a hearing that will forever be imprinted in my memory was an investigation into the shooting of unarmed demonstrators by members of the armed forces. The hall in which the hearing took place was packed to the rafters with a crowd who were justifiably angry. The tension was palpable. Four soldiers entered and their commanding officer admitted delivering the instructions to open fire. He turned to the crowd and asked, please forgive me. The crowd crowd then did something that none of us could have predicted. They broke into wild applause. When the applause subsided, I turned to my fellow members of the commission and said, let us be quiet because we are in the presence of something truly holy. Forgiveness is never easy or cheap. It isn't something you can demand of others. Forgiveness is a deeply personal journey to reconnect with the whole of humanity around you. 
and therefore reconnect with yourself. It is essential because it reveals how we are inextricably bound to each other. As I have said before, there is no future without forgiveness. And then just to end, um, when I wanted to bring Dr. King's voice in. And so just a few minutes from Dr. King. This is from a sermon he gave on judging, which uh, my sister brought back from the King Center in Atlanta uh, a few years ago. This is a sermon he gave about a year before he died on working with the judgmental mind. Okay, and this is from, this is about seven or eight minutes. I'll just have a little excerpt where he's uh, talking about basically how he's bringing the kind heart into a very difficult situation, okay? I'll just play this brief excerpt. It should come through okay. Okay, we need it, need it louder. I'll close just with um, one more passage from Dr. King, which is really pointing to this, really this mysterious and even uh, miraculous quality of the heart opening with difficulties. I'll just end with this. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings.
thank you for your kind attention. And we'll have a walking period and then uh, come back for our uh, chanting at nine. Yeah, practice and chanting at nine. So thank you again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.